0: All right, this afternoon we want to look at the letter to the church at Thyatira. And that begins at verse 18 of chapter 2. So if you'll follow as I read, we'll read the entire epistle to that particular church. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, And his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance. And that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bond servants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality. And eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Tyre, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We have pointed out, as we have examined the first three letters to the churches of Asia Minor in this second chapter, but there is, in two cases, a complimentary address and a negative admonition or rebuke. That is true in the case of the church at Ephesus, and it is true at the church of Pergamon, which we examined last time. The only exception is the message to the church at Smyrna, which is an entirely positive message and contains no apparent rebuke. The message to the church at Thyatira also falls into the pattern of the message to Ephesus and Pergamon. <clears throat> there is a section of complimentary uh, address and then there is a section of warning and rebuke. Now we have noticed that particularly in the case of the church of Pergamon there's a bit of an envelope or framing device there. And you'll notice it here as well. <clears throat> The positive elements are bracketed. They're bracketed by the word deeds in verse 19 and the word deeds in verse 26. Now, the bracket is also a mirror device. Well, the deeds in verse 26 are the deeds of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the deeds that please him. They are the deeds that he himself performed in moral or ethical purity and sinlessness, which does not suggest that the church at Thyatira is sinless, but they are called to mirror or reflect his deeds so that when he says, I know your deeds, he's commending them for being a mirror reflection of his own deeds, inner the ongoing corruption of sin excluded. But within that frame that is the mirror between the deeds of Christ and those deeds reflected in the the life of his bondservants, as he calls them, there are the deeds of this woman and her disciples called Jezebel. That Those deeds are, in fact, the very opposite of the deeds of Christ and the believers who are being sanctified in the spirit in this Thyatirian church. in other words he frames the contrast in order to place the antithesis between the deeds of the flesh Jezebel etc and the deeds of the spirit himself and believers or those who love him in sincerity now i point that out in order to note that there is a literary pattern here which has a theological purpose and that purpose is to encourage those at Thyatira who are holding fast to the deeds of the Lord Jesus. In fact, that they are doing it because he holds them fast in those deeds by the deeds of himself alone. Now that introduction to this, which is the longest of the seven letters to the seven churches. Church in a city of the least Remarkable qualities. One ancient writer said that Thyatira was a city without honor. Now, honor with respect to a city means that it had no glory. It had no outstanding buildings, (coughs) although Thyatira did boast in its temple to the god Apollo, the sun god. Nonetheless, very little remains of this ancient city for us to either confirm or deny that boast of the ancient writer, though there's no reason to doubt it. (coughs) Because the town that now sits on the site of Thyatira was built over the rubble of the ancient city. And that modern town is named (coughs) Akisar. And so there's been very little archaeological excavation at Thyatira. Very little is known about the layout of the city because there's a modern city on top of that ruin. How then, in the light of this apparent insignificance, both ancient and modern, we can't determine the significance of the city because it's covered, in the light of this apparent insignificance, how do we account for its significance in the book of Revelation? That is... It's the subject of the longest epistolary address from Christ to any of the seven churches. Why the longest letter for what may be the most insignificant city? Well, the answer to that lies in a two-fold examination of the history of Thyatira and the ecclesiastical or spiritual history of the church at Thyatira the political and social history, the spiritual and ecclesiastical history. Let's begin with the social history. Thyatira is located on a road which connects Pergamon with Sardis and all points eastward towards Parthia, as it was known in the days of the Roman Empire, or Persia or modern-day Iran. There was a road going through Thyatira that connected Sardis to the south and Pergamum to the north and the west and all of those cities to points eastward to the very border of the Roman Empire on the east. Now, since it was on this road, it was a barrier to invasion of the Roman capital of Asia Minor. Now what was the Roman capital of Asia Minor? Well that's Pergamon, as we noted last week, because of Pergamon's beginning to uh, affirm the devotion to the deity of the Roman emperor and to worship the, and to establish an emperor cult in Pergamon. It was the first church in Asia to do that. It was named the provincial Roman capital of Asia Minor. But... Pergamon could be attacked from the east. And so Thyatira was established as a military garrison city, a garrison which, in fact, had no advantages of other garrison fortresses because Thyatira was on a plain, an open-level plain. There were no rocks, no outcrops, no fortress heights, to protect the city, the only protection at the city lay in the walls that surrounded it. So, Thyatira, a city on a level plain, in a wide-open veil, with no protection itself against invasion, save the soldiers who were manning its ramparts, its walls. In other words, the defenders of Pergamon were counting on soldiers at Thyatira to hold fast against any hostile invaders heading to the west and Rome's provincial capital. Many times, the soldiery in Thyatira was asked to give its life in defense of that capital city over its history. Many invasions were delayed or slowed by what happened at Thyatira. Now, in addition to the garrison status of the city, Thyatira was famous for its guilds or crafting unions. These were associations, our modern labor unions would be an approximate equivalent. These were associations of workers In various media who joined the Guild for Employment Security and for Social Camaraderie. Well, what types of vocations or guilds are we talking about? Well, there are allusions to several of them in this letter. These are, these are all types of manufacturing guilds in Thyatira at this time. Pottery. Brass or metalworking, textiles, including manufacture of garments and coloring or dyeing of cloth. Now, the mention of dyeing cloth in order to color it raises an interesting biblical background question. Who is the most famous or noted person of Thyatira mentioned in the Bible? Lydia, very good. And that story is found in Acts 16, 14. How is she addressed or how is she described in that passage? Or how do you know that she is described if you remember anything about Lydia? Go ahead, Margie. A dealer of purple. She is a seller of purple, a dealer in purple. All right, now let's note a couple of things here as we think about Lydia. In Acts 16, 14. Her name is reflected in the region from which she came. Namely, Thyatira is in the region of Lydia. So here's Lydia, personal name, reminding us of Lydia, the region from which she came. Now her location in the book of Acts is not Thyatira. Thyatira. She is described as one from Thyatira, but she is now living where in the book of Acts? In Philippi. Very good. She originated or was born in Thyatira. She's residing as we encounter her in Philippi. And she encounters someone else, namely the Apostle Paul, who brings her to Christ and salvation. We've already noted that her occupation is a seller of purple cloth or textiles, and that purple color <coughs> is quite popular in the Greco-Roman world. Popular with the rich, popular with the nobility, popular with the ruling class, popular with emperors, kings, and queens. <coughs> it was sought for its rich regal hue. Reddish purple or lavish purple hue was in great demand and very expensive. Well, how did they make this purple dye? This purple material, this purple color. There are two ancient classic sources of what's called the royal purple. The first is the murex, which is a shellfish. grows along the Mediterranean coast and was particularly prominent around the city of Tyre. In fact, the Phoenician city of Tyre was famous for this so-called Tyrian purple that was extracted from the shellfish along the coast of that city. The second source of this royal purple is the madder root, which is the root of a plant. fact, a very deep and long root that was quite prominent in the region of Thyatira and was uh, extracted and dried and then crushed in order to produce what's called turkey red. The madder root gives turkey red as a dying uh, product from this region, from this city. So two sources of this royal purple, one of them was headquartered in Thyatira, the other was headquartered in Tyre and Phoenicia. They used two different sources, but they were both competing for that market of those who wanted purple or purple-red garments. We step back from the little that was given to us in Acts 16, 14, and know a lot about Lydia. She was a businesswoman. She was trading in the most sought-after commodity in the Greco-Roman city of Philippi. That commodity was that purple cloth. I don't mean that the precious metals were were not uh, more precious, but nonetheless, this textile commodity was the most sought-after in the ancient world. But more wonderful than all this is that she had been converted by the Apostle Paul during his second missionary journey to Philippi, a city in which he was imprisoned and a city which he was hosted by Lydia. All right, now let's connect the dots, or let's suggest some connecting of the dots. Is it too much to imagine That Lydia communicated with her friends and family as well as her suppliers and even employees back in Thyatira about her new found faith and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul at the end of that second missionary journey, she was converted at the beginning of it, particularly in its Greek phase, is it Possible that at the end of that second missionary journey, when Paul spent two years in Ephesus, a short distance from Thyatira, as the crow flies at any rate, is it too much to imagine that persons from Thyatira on Lydia's recommendation came down to Ephesus to hear the gospel of salvation and to then return and establish a Christian church which Jesus addresses via this letter. In other words, is the church at Thyatira ultimately due to Lydia's testimony? Thus, we know from this letter, the longest of the seven letters, that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving grace had taken root in Thyatira, perhaps with the encouragement of the Thyatirian Lydia, seller of purple from another kind of root in faraway Philippi and the preaching and teaching of Paul in Ephesus, extending by the word of mouth to this nondescript garrison and guild city on the plains of central western Lydia in Asia. Now, you will notice that these are suggestions there is nothing in the scriptures that prove the dots that I'm connecting. But we must ask ourselves, how do we account for a Christian church, which we're reading about in this second chapter of the book of Revelation? How do we account for its existence? How do we account for its origin? And I am suggesting that we account for it in measure, if not in in the whole, through the testimony of Lydia the gospel that she received through the apostle Paul a gospel which was confirmed to the Thyatirians when some of them perhaps on her recommendation came to Ephesus during that two year sojourn of Paul in that city where we know that other churches were started out of that two year city particularly Epaphras and his testimony going back to Colossae and Paul says in Acts chapter 20 that the word of the gospel went to all of Asia. heaven. he didn't go to every city in Asia, he didn't go to Colossae, but the word of the gospel went to all. In other words, people were coming to hear him and taking the message back to where they came from. On Lydia's recommendation, I am suggesting that many from that some from Thyatira had come and done precisely that, taken the message back to the city and started a church. All right now, <coughs> Beyond the textile workers guild and the um, (coughs) pottery workers guild, there was a flourishing metal workers guild at Thyatira. When our Lord in verse 18 describes his appearance as having feet of burnished bronze, that means bronze which was made in the fire, in a furnace, there is an allusion to the copper and zinc alloy, better known as brass, and it's probably be better translated here brass rather than bronze, <clears throat> an allusion to a copper-zinc alloy, which we know as brass, it was man- manufactured in Thyatira. We know for certain that there were metalworking guilds here, and it's likely that this word that is used <clears throat> is a reference to the brass side of that. And some have suggested that this brass metal material was used for statues of the Roman emperors. And thus Christ is drawing an antithesis to them as pseudo-rulers while he himself is the true and eschatological ruler. I have feet of burnished brass which is eternal, and not like the brass that you're making, to make to mold images of the Roman emperors and bow down before them. Notice that he uses the phrase "flame of fire," an imagery in verse 18, which may also remind the readers of the metalworking crafts, brass or not, in which the flames of the furnace are essential to the melting, annealing, and alloying process. The eyes of Christ burn hotter than the flames of the metalworking furnace. But he is drawing attention to imagery which would resonate with their metalworking guild employees. Thus, <coughs> at Thyatira, we have a textile guild, we have a metalworkers guild, we have also a pottery makers guild, which may be one reason for the reference in verse 7 to the potters' vessels. Now, I've already mentioned that these guilds, very similar to modern labor unions, these guilds (coughs) were associations of like-skilled craftsmen and workers. They came together for social camaraderie as well as reinforcement of employment security. These meetings provided an occasion for solidarity, social-workplace bonding, but, but these guild meetings were also a part of that pagan religious culture which the Greco-Roman world fostered. Membership gatherings of the guilds were dedicated to the patron god or goddess of that particular art. Whether it was pottery, whether it was artwork, whether it was metalworking, whether it was textile working, the meetings of the guilds were dedicated to that patron god or goddess. And participation in the guild required participation in the cultic rites of the god or goddess in question. So they would have religious rites involved in the meeting of the guild. This would involve all that we've already learned about the offering to the gods, namely libations, particularly of wine, offerings of wine, incense, that is the offering of perfume, smoke, In worship to the god or goddess, even drunkenness out of the libations of the wine and other forms of immorality, which we'll describe a little later. Christians would be unable to participate in this idolatry and immorality. Therefore, Christians would be effectively ostracized from the workplace effectively shut out from employment, effectively closed off from the ability to get a job, to care for their family. And Thyatira being a Christian could cost one his or her livelihood because the guild system required participation in pagan ritual. Now, were all of this not pressure enough and trial enough from the secular pagan culture outside the church, the church at Thyatira had significant pressure and trial from inside the congregation. This letter indicates that the culprit is a female prophetess who is named Jezebel. The name reminds the reader of the wife of King Ahab of Israel in the Old Testament. That Old Testament Jezebel, who made a career out of attempting to murder the prophet Elijah and successfully engineered the murder of the landowner, the vineyard owner Naboth of Jezreel. She, that is that Old Testament Jezebel, was also a devotee of the Baal cult, of an idol cult, the Baal cult of Tyre because she was from Tyre. She worshipped the Tyrian Baal, the worship of which we have strong indication to suggest included sacred prostitution. In 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 22, the Old Testament Jezebel was called a source of harlotries, I'm quoting, and witchcraft, I'm quoting those terms may parallel the idolatry and immorality of the Jezebel of old, the Jezebel even of of the new, this Jezebel of Thyatira. That may be the reason the woman is labeled with that name. It is not her actual personal name, but it is the name that characterizes her religious activity and her sexual immorality. The Old Testament Jezebel and this New Testament Jezebel are in the same business. Idol worshipers and sexually promiscuous fornicators. In any event, the church at Thyatira has tolerated this evil female who is deceiving the congregation with idolatry and sexual immorality. Notice that she's called a prophetess. Her prophetic or charismatic message may be a mixture of Christian imagery and doctrine combined with pagan activity and doctrine. How is she seducing this church or portions of this church? How is she getting to them? How is she causing them to practice idolatry and sexual immorality? Think of it this way. She is a charismatic prophetess who speaks out of that mystical experience that charismatics often claim and suggesting that Christians have nothing to fear from participating in eating meat sacrificed to idols. In other words, for the Christian, the practice of eating this meat is meaningless because the gods are nothing. The Christian knows the gods don't exist, and so therefore eating the meat doesn't place any burden upon them. So in other words, it doesn't mean anything, so go ahead and do it because it's your civic or, or social responsibility or in fact responsibility for the sake of you keeping your job and keeping the money flowing into my pockets. Now the same may be true of her encouragement to sexual immorality. Her message may be something like this. The Christian is already saved from sin, so see or she has nothing to fear from indulging the popular sexual sins of Greco-Roman society. This attitude or doctrine is a brash form of antinomianism, free from sin, Oh blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. The gods are nothing. I can patronize them for social and other practical reasons. Sexual purity is nothing because everyone in the pagan society, unchaste or married or not, is not. It does it all it does it. So if everybody does it. So there's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't harm you because you're already saved from it. So indulge the sexual liberty because you're free in Christ, which is classic antinomian doctrine. Now, this is an attempt to come to grips with how she could have some influence on Christians in that congregation. She could be seducing them with a form of Christian liberty and license, which is very attractive, even in this generation. (coughs) Christian liberty and license That you're not harmed by the peccadillos or even the immoralities of the world because you've already been saved and forgiven for them. So have at it. Free from sin, O blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. There are voices within the Christian world even today who are saying that very same thing. Now, I'm not concluding that I have accurately assessed the motivation of her message or the attraction of her message. But whether I have or not, this we know. This woman was responsible for Christians in that church practicing idolatry, worshiping other gods than the one true God. This woman was responsible for seducing Christians in this church for practicing sexual immorality, fornication, and, 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 and unchaste sexual behavior inside and outside of marriage. How she persuaded them to this point, we are, <clears throat> I am speculating, I agree. But nonetheless, like the Balaamites and like the Nicolaitans at Pergamon, she is an advocate of antinomian, uh, practice, antinomian lifestyle. We went through a revolution of this in the 60s when we we had had the the, the sexual revolution and the, the situational ethics epidemic in which, well, you let the situation determine whether you're really in love in that situation or not, and then you just go ahead and do what you want. And there were Christian writers and Christian churches that were promoting that situational ethic at that time, the most famous Archbishop of the movement was a man named Joseph Fletcher. So <clears throat> we've been down that road. And it's, the, it's, it's a road that doesn't stop beckoning its, uh, its devotees. All right, now, <clears throat> Christ Jesus will have none of this justification for sin. Jesus will have none of it. In the strongest terms in this epistle, he demands that Jezebel repent, verse 21, that she turn from idolatry and flagrant, immoral sexual activity, and that she turn in sole devotion to the one true and triune God, and that she turn to sexual chastity and purity in in a penitent about-face. Because the Greek word for repent means to do an about-face, to turn, to turn from going that direction to going the opposite direction, the direction of idolatry to the direction of worshiping the triune God alone, the direction of sexual immorality to the direction of sexual purity and chastity. Reba, I think you had your hand up. Yeah, I was just wanting to know what context there, there being taught
1: are Gentiles, they're not Jews, correct? It it
0: is likely a more Gentile than Jewish congregation, convert congregation. Go ahead. So they're
1: not steeped in the Jew, I'm not justifying, I'm saying what scriptures did they have? And I I recall somewhere where, I think it was in Acts, where where the apostles said, we do not require them to do this, except to accept to to um, not no right identity. you're referring to the Council of Jerusalem
0: in acts 15 right. those two things that we're talking about here were set up there
1: right and but I'm sort of wanting to get a um, foundation of did they have the epistles um, that it was really clear don't do this and I know like in acts we told they sent a letter saying don't no sexual immorality and no adultery. Right. So that's very clear. I'm just. The assumption
0: is that as the church was planted, it was planted out of Paul's gospel. In other words, it's come to them out of his work in Ephesus. And what he's doing in Ephesus would be as thorough as anything we know about from his epistles or from his sermons in the book of Acts, including the testimony of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. That was, shall we say, Standard operating procedure in the in what we accept and what we don't accept with respect to pagan culture and pagan uh, sexual uh, activity.
1: Right. So I sort of liken it to you know we have this document like the Jews, the ten-year-old knew the Old Testament, the fishermen, you know those people around Jesus. They even though they were not educated, they 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 were educated in Jewish in the in the. Or, uh, Jewish culture they had some sort of education right where you got heathens here
0: right this, this is a good question because it focuses upon the oral tradition or the oral communication of the gospel in its initial phase before there was were written written epistles but those written epistles would then reinforce that whenever they came uh, where their copies became available or those that had read them were able to testify to them so you're, you're dealing with the the word of God in this oral phase here. It would be coming to these Gentile believers as well as the Jewish believers. Yes, it would be reinforced in Jewish context by the Old Testament scriptures, but it would be reinforced by the testimony to what Christ himself had taught and passed on by the disciples to the Apostle Paul and what Paul himself is teaching of that gospel in its fullest context. In other words, Paul's whole, whole counsel of God is communicated to all of these churches who receive the message of his word going out to the churches in Asia, Acts chapter 20. So there is an oral word of mouth communication here until it's it's inscripturated and documented uh, as the epistles are recognized and accepted and also uh, copies sent around
1: how easily it would be to seduce somebody into that cultural situation and antinomianism and not unlike it is today where preachers are not preaching expository teaching but sort of whatever the Holy Spirit gives them. To, you know what I'm saying? Uh,
0: yes, I, I. you're leaning to the fact that the, having the document is more important than just the altar tradition.
1: And for us to know it also. Yes. Uh,
0: the, the impact, however, of the word of God, the word of Christ, okay? See, that that that's the thing that they were to hold on to, not the word of uh, some female prophetess, not the word of some other human uh, authority, but they were to hold on to what had been communicated by the apostles and disciples of Christ. So that would be what they were... That would be the, the standard to which they would have been directed. <clears throat> and that standard would have been easy to determine from uh, those that had either known Lydia or known the communication that she sent to them, if that's the case, or those that had been down to Ephesus and come back to help establish the church.
1: And
0: this is also how many years after Paul? This is at least 30 years after his death as according to tradition he dies between 64 and 68 AD so we're up to 96 AD here approximately uh <clears throat> so the, the there there had been the potential of copies of the Paul's of Paul's epistles and even the gospels to have reached Thyatira and other places the possibility you. you're welcome all right uh with that with those comments we'll break and we'll come back to continue Jezebel has been commanded by the Lord Jesus to repent, and if she does not, he will visit her. He will also visit her followers in the church, the fiery judgment of cursing her bed of immorality, cursing that bed with sickness, and casting her at all into fierce tribulation. Even her children, or her disciples as the case may be, will die so that these deep things of Satan may be purged from the church. Notice that Christ exposes not only the sinful deeds or acts, he knows the sinful mind and heart which imagines these sinful deeds and acts. Please note how important it is to Christ that we guard our minds, what we think about, and that we guard our hearts, what we are affectionate or passionate about. This is not just a matter of the flesh. It's a matter of the mind and the heart and soul. Idolatry of the mind and heart destroys devotion and love to God in Christ and the Holy Spirit alone. You don't bow before the idol until you first thought about it. It's in your mind. And then you are devoting yourself to it. It's in your heart. The act of your body prostrate before the idol is a consequence of your idolatrous mind and your idolatrous heart. By the same token, immoral indulgences of sexual relations are in the mind and heart first, fantasies prior to realities. and They corrupt the love and affection of a man for his wife and a wife for her husband. Christ Jesus is the sole lover of his bride. There is no other lover for his bride than Christ Jesus. There is no lover that that bride wants than the bridegroom, Christ himself. She alone is his passion as he alone is her passion. It is a sole mutual relationship. That is the relationship which stands behind sexual purity Inside and outside of marriage. It is the relationship of Christ, the bridegroom of the church, to the church, his precious beloved bride. Genuine repentance does bring divine grace in forgiveness of sexual immorality, as David of old understood, see Psalm 51. But let us be conscious at all times, especially with respect to sexual purity. Christ searches the heart and mind and knows the acts and deeds which we have considered and which we have committed. Now, the heavenly arena helps here. What could you have on your mind were you standing before the triune Lord God of heaven? Could you have other gods before him on your mind, standing in his presence? No, you see the absurdity of it. What could you have in your heart, in your affection, and your passion were before you, were you before the Triune Lord God of heaven? Could you fantasize about sexual immorality if you were standing there in His presence? It's absurd. You couldn't even have the thought. What would you do with your body, your physical acts, were you before the Triune Lord of God of heaven? Could you use your body as an instrument of immorality, sexually speaking, if you were standing and and laying before the God of heaven and earth? Heaven helps here. The heavenly orientation helps here. As Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, of such is the kingdom of heaven. This is the ethic of the kingdom of heaven I'm laying down for you here. The Ten Commandments contain that in a nutshell. That's the ethic of the kingdom of heaven. It's the moral code of God. It's the purity of that environment. Our moral and ethical thinking, loving, behaving, needs to be measured in terms of heaven's moral and ethical climate and standard. Think of your character In mind and heart and body, think of your character in terms of the character that you're called to be when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. Act in accordance with that. Put your mind on the things above, not on the things below, Colossians 3. Now, we've reached the eschatological promises of this letter. And what we want to notice is that the eschatological assurances which close this letter are those appropriate to a military history. Recall that Thyatira was a garrison outpost on the road to Pergamon in the west. Many times in its history, the town and soldiery had been urged to Hold fast against an approaching enemy threat. Verse 25 takes up this past history into the present story of the church. And Jesus says to the church at Tyra, hold fast. Hold fast against the enemies of Christ. Hold fast against that evil Jezebel and her disciples, the dabblers in the deep things of Satan. Notice the deep things of Satan were being uh, uh, drawn, these people were being drawn, and some of these people were being drawn into those things in this church. Being drawn into the deep things of the arch enemy, the devil himself. Bob. I cannot imagine how Jezebel became part of this church. It, It just It doesn't fit in my head that that she would even be there. She wouldn't want to be in the church, would she? Uh, She would want to be if she was trying to subvert it. In other words, if it it was a target on her agenda to draw these people into her own arena, the power play on her part. She's a female power broker instead of a male power broker, but nonetheless, that's something that would motivate her. The goddess motif, or being close to the goddess motif in the ancient world, is very powerful seduction, also also very powerful uh, employment. So that—that's one possible uh, answer to your question. Or that she herself is
1: seduced. She herself is seduced. Yeah, she she seduced me.
0: She seduced <laughs> by her own agenda. That is true. I mean, it's
1: not necessarily a conscience thing that. I'm about that, she herself is
0: deceived. Mm, I don't think so. I think this is a very calculated woman, just like Je- one of the reasons she's called Jezebel. In the Old Testament Jezebel is an extremely con- con- calculated schemer and perverter and corrupter and murderer. Remember, she laid out Naboth's death in, in step-by-step fashion. So I think the same issue is here. And pagan culture, power was money. Power was uh influence. So it's possible that that's how she came to it. I don't know that if she came to it from outside the church, if it came to it from being outside the church. In other words, she was turned to it after coming into the church. So she may have been at one time uh, perfectly appropriate, okay, and then turned against it. So that's one of the reasons he's asking her to repent, turn away from what you've become. But we once were now turned back to that, possibly. Well, the enemy is the spiritual enemy here. The deep things of Satan gives us the clue to that. Hold fast to these by holding fast to Christ because Christ has overcome the enemy at his cross, and at the empty tomb. Those tokens, namely, that empty bloody cross and that empty burial grave, those tokens are testimony that he has overcome the devil. He has overcome the deep things of Satan, which include death and guilt and the punishment of sin. He has cast out Satan by the almighty right arm of his power. He demonstrated that in his exorcisms during his earthly ministry. Hold fast then to the eschatological victor over the anti-eschatological adversary. Here's this antithesis once again between Christ and Satan, more than the antithesis between Jezebel and the faithful in that church. Jesus says, I am coming to you. Relief and reinforcement are nigh. Hold fast, hold fast. The one who holds fast to me now and to the end. The one who loves me now and to the end. The one who has faith in me now and to the end. The one who keeps my deeds now and to the end. Such a one will participate in what I possess now and to the end. I possess all authority in heaven and earth. This I have received from my Father. I, his Son, the Son of God the Father, and this authority which I have received from him, I will share with you. You will be rulers in authority with me over the principalities and the powers and the rulers of the depths of darkness, even as I am. You will be caught up and folded into the messianic kingdom promised to me in Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, referred to in verse, verses 26 and 27 of this passage. Those are quotations. From Psalm 2. That psalm is descriptive of my messianic person. You are my son. Today I have begotten you from Psalm 2. That draws you into the begotten again. Sons and daughters of the messianic king. Because of my begottenness. You can be begotten again. It is not the same ontological process. But it is a process of grace. And As I have authority to rule over the nations. So you will be granted participation in that rule along with me. Joint rulers in me together over the Gentile nations. I shall rule them with a rod of iron, an image perhaps precious to the Christians in the iron worker guilds at Thyatira. I will rule with a rod of iron and you will participate in that iron standard of righteous rule and authority in my messianic kingdom. As a side note, perhaps this reference to the iron standard is a contrast to the iron standard of the staff of the Roman emperor. Perhaps. I shall shatter the defiance and resistance of my enemies like vessels of pottery are shattered to pieces. Their hatred of my person and my righteous kingdom, their warfare against me and my servants and my messianic reign will be broken in pieces, shattered at last. You will participate in that victory as you are redeemed and released from the bondage and captivity of the militant enemies of me and my kingdom. Hold fast. Hold fast. You will be sharers, joint heirs of my royal dignity, as well as sharers, and joint heirs of my royal kingdom authority. You will share in my royal dignity. You will be called sons and daughters of God. You will share in my ruling authority. You will be called heirs of the kingdom of heaven. I have overcome the world, Battered in, bat, that world that is battering me, and even now my scepter extends over an eternal kingdom of love and faith and perseverance and life life from the dead forever and ever. Hold fast against the enemy. Now the final eschatological gift in these promises, which conclude all of the epistles, but particularly this one, is in verse 28. The Lord Christ will give his victorious sons and daughters, his messianic begotten again sons and daughters. He will give them a morning star now if you turn ahead to revelation 22:16 you will note that jesus claims this image as a self designation i am the bright morning star he says in that passage revelation 22:16 notice what's happening here what he is he communicates to his people. What he is, he has and gifts to his redeemed, his justified, his sanctified sons and daughters. What he is and has, he gives to the overcomers. But what exactly is given in this image? I will give you the morning star Well, the context helps us here. This verse concludes or ends the list of messianic realities in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus from verses 26 on. So the morning star is the concluding connection and image of the messianic person and his messianic authority. Some scholars note that in the Roman Empire from Julius Caesar to the mid second century AD, the morning star or Venus was worshipped as a deity, a goddess. They conclude that Jesus is contrasting himself to the pagan worship of the Roman imperium. In other words, he is the true morning star because he is the true God of gods and Lord of lords, not Rome or her Venus. Others note the Star of Bethlehem in Matthew 2.2. The Star of Bethlehem regarded as a royal or regnal phenomena by the three magi. These wise men from the east, journeyed in search of a new king and a new kingdom following yonder star. And in Numbers twenty-four seventeen, the Lord prophesies that a star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. The star of Jacob is at the same time poetic parallelism, a scepter from Israel. A light of star-like glory And the royal and the rule of a royal scepter. Our risen Lord Jesus sitting upon his royal throne in the kingdom of heaven is the starlight of glory who brings the dawn of the morning starlight of his royal kingdom to the minds, hearts, and lives of his loving and believing overcomers. They walk in that light of the dawn of the new kingdom The messianic kingdom of the messianic king. Hold fast to the kingdom of the triune God and of his Christ. For he, the king and Lord Jesus Christ, holds fast to you who love him. Hold fast to you who believe in him. Holds fast to you who are united to him by grace through faith. Hold fast to him. And realize in holding that he first held fast to you. Lord, enable us to hold fast in the perseverance of faith and love in the glorious Son of your own begetting, and the one who by the Spirit, begets us again as sons and daughters of the living god in a hostile environment and a world which is increasingly opposed to you and to your son's kingdom o oh lord let us rest in peace that his scepter is over all and that we have been called out of this kingdom into the kingdom of the world to come where our citizenship in heaven is inscribed bless us with this encouragement And allow us to be overcomers as those who did not venture into the deep things of Satan and Thyatira. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.